0: Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Jill Morgenthaler, retired military officer who, among other things, handled press duties for the Army in Iraq in 2004. Jill, welcome to Profiles. Thank you. In 1972, I think it was, you were in the first class of women to enter ROTC. This was a time of discontent among young people. You also came from a military family. What was it that directed you toward ROTC?
1: Yeah, my father was a Marine, and actually, I never got interested until after Vietnam. He was stationed at the Pentagon and was doing military intelligence, and he would disappear for days at a time. It was uh, things going on in the Caribbean. Haiti was very hot even then. And I just found that fascinating. So when they opened up ROTC, one day I just walked up to the ROTC building and said, I want to be in military intelligence. And, of course, they had all the paperwork ready for me to sign.
0: You were one of the first ten women, I think, to get four-year ROTC scholarships. Yes, Um, I was. What was that competition like, or did you realize it was a competition?
1: I knew it was a competition. It was rather, Actually, it was rather strange because I had shown up a little late, um, not the first day of going in, applying. I was the only young woman there not in uniform, and it was a panel, and the other women had walked out. I was last, and they would walked out saying, no, oh, it was easy. We were asked about what we thought of the movie MASH, et cetera. So I walked in thinking, oh, this is going to be cake. And they really drilled me. Did I feel I was privileged because I was the daughter of an officer? Did I feel I was special because my parents had raised me in the – and I felt like I was batting um, these questions, you know, going for the middle of the road. And uh, by the time I walked out, it's like, where was that question about MASH? <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs> I started um, advanced ROTC uh, in 1968, just four years before. Mm-hmm. And – I remember a place that would not have been very women-friendly. Women were not serving normally there except in the, in the wax, I guess. Um, the songs we chanted when we ran, uh, the comments the drill sergeants made must not have been easy for you.
1: No. Um, I mean, uh, even even after I was commissioned as an officer, I would have enlisted men, sergeants, privates, whatever, come up to me and go, oh, a woman in uniform. Are you a butch or a bitch or a bimbo? And I would just stand very tall, very proud and say, I am an officer of the United States Army. And they would back off and literally apologize. But yeah, unwanted touch. The songs, oh, the songs were horrific. You know, I learned very early to let things roll off my back.
0: Did you get any training in that? Did the, the no. Army help it?
1: No. The word sexual harassment did not exist at that point. But one, one thing I saw when I was at officer boot camp, you know, leadership training, is one day uh, one uh, – I believe he's probably a West Point officer – took it out on me the whole class. Every single question was directed at me, and then I had to do push-ups for every single answer. And I saw the men I was training with kind of sit up after a while thinking, this is wrong, because I was part of their team. And that was one of the fabulous things. We we had formed as a team and I no no longer was the girl. And then I was fortunate. I actually had wonderful commanders who wanted me to succeed as they wanted everyone else. So even though there was that environment out there, I had a very I had very smart real leaders I got to work for. You
0: were the first female company commander in the Army Security Agency Group Korea, the first woman battalion commander in the 88th Regional Support uh, Command, the first woman brigade commander in the 84th Division.
1: Did you get tired of always being first? No. (laughs) I have to admit I loved it. (laughs) Um, One thing I watched, there was a woman commander over in, in Germany when I was stationed over there, who unfortunately turned out to be an alcoholic. And when I went for her command, it was denied to me because I was a woman like her. And so I truly understood we were in a fishbowl. Everything I did was watched and judged and when we re- reflect on all women. So in a way, being first made me, I think, work extra hard, realizing, like you said earlier, being a pioneer. And I took the time to reach out and mentor young women because there were no mentors for me.
0: What was the reaction of foreign military with which you cooperated?
1: Oh, I remember in Germany, uh, Hauptmann means Captain, Hauptmann Morgenthaler, and they'd all be looking for the man. i come, you know, marching in, and their jaws would drop. The biggest reaction, though, I was in Egypt. I was working for an Egyptian general. I was there uh, with my unit. I was a battalion commander, and he told me the very first day, Lieutenant Colonel Morgenthaler, I'm not dealing with you. You are a woman. Yes, sir. And I realized I could not change thousands of years of Egyptian culture. But I did tell my major, Major Healy, I said, "Um, you do nothing without my approval. And so every day uh, there were no elevators. We're in this military camp. But he was on the – the general was on the fifth floor. I was on the ground floor. And every day a private would come down five floors, get Major Healy, who'd have to go up five floors, get the general's request, and then go, oh, I have to clear it with Colonel Morgenthaler. Come down five floors. I would say yes. Go up five floors. No general wants to be kept waiting. And one day that private came down and went, Colonel Morgenthaler, the general wants to see you. And I knew as I went up those five floors, whatever he requested, he's going to get a yes. But um, – I thought I did teach that old dog a new trick.
0: (laughs) You were in intelligence as your first branch. Was Mm -hmm. that
1: your choice? Yes, that's what I wanted. I did that for five years. And then after that, I went into civil affairs, rebuilding of nations, um, also did some psychological operations. And then the Army found that I had a strength in public affairs. It was not something I sought, but it was something that the Army chose for me.
0: I want to get back to that in, in a bit. One of the more interesting um, things that you did, you were stationed at the Presidio in 1989 at the time of the San Francisco earthquake, and you got involved in disaster recovery. What exactly were you doing, and how did that come about?
1: Yeah, and that, that event actually changed my life. I didn't realize it at that time. In fact, I just had a baby, and uh, the earthquake struck, and we were drilling that weekend as a reserve unit in the Presidio, and it was interesting, the politics... Uh, to use us um, because we, of course, wanted to get in there. And our job was to help move families out of their homes along the Marina District. Those homes were all going to be destroyed. And it was very heartbreaking for the families. And we went in there, and with as much care and concern as we could, we removed their belongings and and on the politics is uh, the mayor of San Francisco at first was very reluctant, but he finally did choose to use us. And I thought that was a very smart move because we were able to go in there. And that's when I also worked with the Salvation Army for the first time, the American Red Cross. And years later, I went into emergency management. And so that was a, without realizing it, a turning point in my life.
0: How was it different in dealing with domestic groups after having been in on active duty army for five years before going into the reserves?
1: It was a real cultural shock. I came out of active duty in Europe. I had been stationed in Korea and Europe, so I'd never even been stationed in the United States. So I'd been out of America for five years, and I missed a big chunk of changes in America. And then I showed up in California uh, to go to graduate school, so not only did I... <laughs> come out of the military, but I went into the California culture. Um, What I found interesting were a lot of the assumptions made about me. I was considered to be – they just assumed because I was military that I was very ultra conservative, and that is not who I am. And so – and then I would walk into job interviews, and people's faces would change, and I realized they were expecting the gorilla with the knuckles dragging, and that's not who I am. So – I'm glad I went to graduate school for two years because it helped acclimate me and kind of very much was in that military form. And so it helped me become more of a civilian before I went into the workplace.
0: Was this at Monterey? Yes. What did you study there?
1: I studied international policy studies um, at Monterey Institute of International Studies, and I minored in Chinese.
0: You held a variety of posts, uh, and then you mentioned you wound up in in civil affairs and commander of the of a press camp headquarters. Was this something that you chose or they chose for you?
1: I wanted to command. I mean, that was necessary for my career. Plus, I loved commanding. I loved leading. And so I do, was doing public affairs at Argonne National Laboratory in my civilian job. So I put in for that battalion and I did not have the military experience but I just I just poured everything into the letter of what I could do for them and they had just flunked a huge um wartime inspection for the unit. So all of a sudden this person out of the blue shows up. It it was supposed to go to the good old boy and then they they realized they had to bring in someone qualified and I remember the general sitting me down going, "You better fix this unit." <laughs> Sir, yes, sir.
0: (laughs) Did you have any special training in um, press relations?
1: No, I had not. I mean, when I worked at Argonne National Laboratory, I had actually worked in public affairs, and I'd worked out in California in software in, once again, in public affairs, but my things were more doing special events. So I did not have the training of working with the media. So when Bosnia occurred, I became a commander in 95. Bosnia occurred in 96. I requested to go there. Because not only did I feel I could help contribute, but I could also learn on the ground, on the job, what to do. And at first I wasn't going to go, and then the reserve unit was failing miserably over there, and they were about to get kicked out of the country. And so I got a call from the Pentagon, another one of those, you better go over there and fix it, sir, yes, sir. And I came in with that whole customer attitude. I showed up and I said to the command, what do you need? And they were shocked. No one had asked them. So a lot of this I learned on the ground, but I luckily had very professional public affairs people working with me.
0: What was the most difficult problem you had dealing with the media in Bosnia?
1: Of course, everything you say is on record no matter what. Even if you're – I I had said one very um, stupid thing. It had been pouring rain, and some of the women from some of the big newspapers had asked me, did I want to sit in their car and get warmed? I did. And I made the mistake of saying, well, you know, what a big problem for such a rinky-dink town. And that made national news and uh, got myself hauled over the coals on that one. And that was like, oh, you just broke probably rule number one. And one of the things is as a professional uh, journalist and military, we have to work together. We are not friends. (laughs) (laughs) I have to stay professional and and stay on mission.
0: What was your... Evaluation of the quality of the media that you dealt with.
1: Um, You know, it was very high quality. What I learned both in Bosnia and Iraq is you get the top class, first class journalists coming at the beginning of the war. And very professional, uh, doing a lot of research. Towards... Drawdown, though, that's when uh, they start heading off to another war, another place, and then you end up with the stringers, who are often locals who are hired, and they often have a political agenda. So we actually had instigators who were posing as Bosnian media, but they were actually creating some of the incidences. So um, I had to work very closely with my interpreters in staying alert who was truly a journalist and who was there for actually another purpose. Hmm.
0: I found one interesting story about you um, at your time in – during your time in Bosnia. Um, You were accompanying Brigadier General George Casey on foot when angry Muslim refugees suddenly surrounded him and with Casey's bodyguard some distance away, you and a male soldier moved next to him. And you had your hand on your pistol.
1: What happened then? Yeah, all of a sudden, it was amazing how fast these mobs would form. And next thing, they have these big sticks. They have the rocks. And one thing I had learned, I'm not sure where I had learned it, find the instigator of the mob. So as we're getting surrounded, we have people screaming in our face. They've got these sticks and rocks. I'm looking for the instigator. And I see this man dashing among the crowd, giving them instructions. And the thing that was really tense in Bosnia is the children our women are up front. The men are in the back. You don't know if they have weapons or not. So I did have my hand on my weapon. I found the instigator, and I luckily – I had a a very trustworthy interpreter at my side, and I said to him, you stop this or I shoot you first. And I meant it, and he saw that I meant it, and he stopped it, which I was just amazed (laughs) that it actually worked. And I think it was a – you know, you talk about courage. I think it was a mixture of of fear and anger and, you know, and it all quieted down. How did you happen to get into this
0: when you're doing press affairs?
1: Well, he he was in a village. Um, there was going to be negotiations between the Serbs and the Muslims. And uh, because the media was going to be there, I was there. And so, like I said, I'm not quite sure where his bodyguards were at that moment. And, uh, in fact, I had another incident in another village, General Abazay, where uh, – well, it was – his, his his bodyguards and me and he's like, Morgenthaler, protect the Russians because the mob was moving in on the Russian soldiers and my thought was, oh, my father is turning over in his grave because, of course, he had been a Cold War warrior. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. You also dealt with Resettlement of Kosovar refugees. Mm-hmm. What was what was your mission there?
1: They were actually brought here to New Jersey, and it was actually it was for, uh, in the military history annals. It was interesting because it was a mission begun by the reserves. We fell in on the uh, Fort uh, Dix and set up the camp, and then the active duty followed in. And usually it's the other way around. And once again, my mission was working with the media. Um, we had a lot of media interest. Hillary Clinton had visited out there, of course, the governor of New Jersey. Um, it was very heartwarming because, especially with the children, for the first time in their lives, they were safe. And they started to laugh and play and behave as children. And I actually worked with one young lady who wanted to become an English teacher and go back to Kosovar. And I was mentoring her during the weeks I was there.
0: Let's take a break now for some music you've chosen, Born to be Wild. Why that?
1: (laughs) Well, let's face it. I was a rebel. You know, I came into the military when men the draft was over. Men were not volunteering. And so they opened it up to women. And what I did not realize is Uncle Sam wanted me, but the men didn't. And so I always had to hold my ground, fight to do my job. It's amazing how many people just wanted me to go sit in a corner. And I had to keep popping out of the corner and do my job. So um, I remember one guy asked me, you one of those feminists? And I'm like, well, let's see a woman in the military. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, you hate men? Let's see a woman. Woman in the military. No, I don't think so. Um so this song always appealed to me. <laughs>
0: Born to be Wild, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, retired Army Colonel Jill Morgenthaler. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. You mentioned before working at Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago. You were there in September 2001 on that fateful day. What did you do?
1: I was driving to work and, of course, the first plane, I just thought, what a terrible accident. Uh, The second plane, it was like, oh, my gosh, we are at war. Who is the enemy? And I'm sitting there thinking, is it the Chinese? Is is it the Iranians? You know, what is going on? And so – Basically, I called the Pentagon and I said, and my command, and I said, I'm here at my desk. I'm not moving. The next day, I activated my reserve command, and even though we were a school brigade, I wasn't sure what we could do, but I figured we could do at least logistics. We could move medical supplies. You know, we were there to support, and I was there with a, my, my, one of my tenants was a, a marine rifle company, and they're running around with their weapons, so I wasn't worried about us. What I saw was America change. That second day, I was in uniform. I went to my daughter's elementary school to pick her up. And when I showed up at the school, children saw me. And without any permission, they all ran into the hallway and got in line for my autograph. And that's when I realized we were no longer misfits. We were now heroes. Because when I had... As a young woman, you know, post-Vietnam, people go, can't you do something else? You know, there's just a lot of negative attitudes about the military. And then when America was attacked, we became heroes. Hmm.
0: In 2004, you were assigned as public affairs officer for the headquarters of the multinational forces in Iraq. That has to be one of the most challenging Um, experiences of your whole career.
1: Yes, I felt every day I was walking on a a tightrope wire, and if I said one thing wrong, I would be fired. (laughs) Um, It was um, because I oversaw uh, for General Sanchez, the media, the television, the radio, the newspaper, and of course, uh, 2004 was a very dangerous time, and so we were working with the media, and then of course, I had my exciting showdown with Saddam Hussein during that time too.
0: Um, some people have heard it before, but a lot of people haven't, so please share it.
1: Saddam Hussein had already been captured by the time I came into country, and he finally was going to go before a judge for his crimes on, against humanity. So I pulled rank on my uh, soldiers, and I escorted the media. So into the, the small courtroom, I took in Christina Amapur, Peter Jennings, Al Jazeera, al Al-Arabiya, and others. There is no room for me. So I'm outside, and when he arrived, and this was never reported because the media was inside, he arrived. He was in his suit, but he was shackled, his hands, his feet. And as he walked in, his eyes were on the ground, and he shook, which is total fear. And I thought to myself, oh, he thinks he's going to die today. He's going to have his hearing, get his sentence, and be executed. That was what he did. And I thought, okay, he's going to eventually realize he's not dying today, and this will get interesting. So I'm out in the hallway, and eventually he realizes he's not dying that day, and he starts threatening the judge, the judge's family, um, big uproar. Finally, the judge kicks him out. He comes out. He sees me, and he checks me out, and I'm thinking, I don't think so. So I'm staring right back at him, and I remember General Sanchez had said when he had looked into Saddam Hussein's eyes, he'd seen pure evil. So I've never seen pure evil. So I'm looking, and I'm looking. I thought, you know, I'm I'm seeing a dirty old man is what I'm seeing. And neither one of us backed off. And then finally, he barked out a command. The guards laughed, took him away, and I looked at another guard, and I'm like, well, what did he say? Kill her. Excuse me. He used to execute people for staring at him. So no matter how people feel about that war, I am very glad he is gone.
0: Did you have – the same attitude before you had that personal contact.
1: I, about him and his sons. I I had been to, of course, I'd been to Abu Ghraib, and I had seen his torture chamber. I'd actually been to an auditorium where people were similarly executed, and the blood was still soaked in the floor. And I'd been to one of the palaces that we called the Rape Palace. It was literally the palace was just bedrooms, bathrooms, and a kitchen where Saddam Hussein's sons literally grabbed young ladies off the street and raped them. And so there was just a pervasiveness of evil. And so to have all three gone, to me, was a a relief for humanity.
0: You mentioned Abu Ghraib. You were there when the story broke about your soldiers
1: yes, um, it was a very shameful time. It was shameful for the, what the seven soldiers did to the prisoners, very much against our training in the Geneva Convention. It was also a shameful time on the part of the leadership that chose not to tell the American people the truth sooner. I mean, Abu Ghraib was known in high echelons up you know up to Donald's Rumsfield before I arrived in country. Because I was briefed that there was this prison thing, and it was going to break while I was there. And I said, why aren't we telling it now? It doesn't get better. Bad news doesn't get better. And they're like, well, no, we have commands on high. So I figured they meant the White House or Donald Rumsfeld. And then, of course, it did break. And it was very ugly because we lost the faith of the American people. Um, The media was so focused on Abu Ghraib that we could not tell a good story for all the good we were doing in the country. All of that was washed away by seven very um, unethical, immoral individuals. Did you have trouble uh,
0: getting the kind of information you needed to respond to media inquiries?
1: It was difficult because there were, you know, some things were classified. Um, What I did, though, my um, I researched every question they had. I I had my soldiers continue their mission, and I devoted myself to Abu Ghraib. And every question the media had, I would research the truth. And get it out. And one, of the, I want to. I was one of the people who pointed out the fact that contractors had been hired for interrogation. Nobody knew that we hired contractors for that. So I devoted myself to what was permissible to be release of releasing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you think that the world media gave the story a fair treatment?
1: It became um, – that story became a propaganda tool around the world. In fact, um, I was talking to Professor Raymer who mentioned there was a huge billboard in Indonesia of one of the photographs with we will get our revenge. And we we lost a lot of faith. People would not believe us, you know. So fair or not, we, we brought it upon ourselves when we chose not to tell the truth at the beginning.
0: What did you learn from the incident as far as – dealing with the media in your kind of professional aspect of it?
1: Well, part of the frustration was they wanted immediate answers. Well, when an answer had to come from a general, I had to reach out to a general who had a real mission. I could not get an answer within minutes or hours. Sometimes I couldn't reach the general until the next day. And, oh, there is one Chicago Tribune story that Colonel Morgenthaler wouldn't answer this. She wouldn't tell us this. And, you know, I couldn't because I had not had – I was not able to get access till the next day. So that immediacy can often conflict with the actual real missions that we're doing at the same time. Do you
0: think it's a hard – perhaps an unfair question, but there was a time when uh, most war correspondents had had some military duty at one time or another, and now that's very rarely the case. Do you think they understand what's going on?
1: Uh, there's a lot of war correspondents who show up and have no idea about the military culture. They don't understand ranks. They don't understand units. I felt like um, not not the f- world-class journalists but the, the ones who were following in. I mean you get some young lady from Greensboro, North Carolina. This was a jaunt for her and she knew nothing. And I felt like a lot of times we were spending our time educating them. You know, this is the military. Um, You know, this is the culture. A soldier will speak on what he or she knows. Do not ask them of an opinion on something else because they're not going to tell you. We only speak on what we call what's in our lane. And so um, there was definitely training needed.
0: This kind of leads us to the whole business of embedding. Uh, I don't know how much you dealt with that specifically, but – was it a success? And if so, in what way?
1: By the time I got there, we were doing very short-term embedding, which I thought was actually optimum. A lot of uh, media outlets complain that embedding gets a journalist too personally close to the story, too connected to the soldiers or Marines, and that you lose perspective. But when you're not embedding and you're getting the big picture, you do not get the intensity of the actual war or the battle or the pain and the conflict. And so what I appreciated is when I was there, there were a lot of journalists who did the big picture and then would go for short-term embedding with like the Marines in Fallujah. And I thought that was maybe possibly the best of both worlds because they had the big picture, but they also got that personal uh, understanding of what it is to actually be in war.
0: What do you think was your biggest accomplishment as a military officer? Wow.
1: (laughs) I saved the Western world as we know it. (laughs) When I did military intelligence over in uh, Berlin, one day I, I came home at lunchtime and I was talking to a lieutenant in the post office and a captain in the infantry, and the lieutenant started bragging that he was going over to East Berlin and being wined and dined by the Soviets. And he was playing with their heads. And I'm military intelligence, you know, my little paranoid antennae go up and I'm thinking, what are the Soviets doing? What do they want from him? He's a postal clerk. And so I just kept using military intelligence techniques like, ooh, what else are you getting? Ooh, how cool of you. Wow, what else are you getting? And it finally boiled down that the Soviets were going to treat his brother to a tour of Eastern Europe. His brother was an engineer at Lockheed in Sunnyvale. I don't know that we would ever have seen the brother again, let alone the technology. And so I remember after I finally realized that, I'm like, oh, you know, i, I got to go back to work. And once I got around a building, I just ran to the command, burst into the lieutenant colonel's office going, you're not going to believe what the Soviets are doing. And uh, save the Western world as we know it. <laughs> Loose lips sink ships, I think. Oh, was the gosh, word. yeah. And talk
0: about playing somebody's ego. <laughs> Do you miss military life?
1: Some days I do. You know, it's, it's an adrenaline. It's living on the edge. Life is also simple. You have your mission, and that's all you do. And I really realized that when I came home from Bosnia, and I saw the lines in my husband's face for raising two kids, a dog, three cats, work, homework, bills, and everything. And I was off having this adventure in Bosnia, and all I did was one thing.
0: Did he have military background?
1: Not at all. Um, I was very, real fortunate, though. He was so proud of me, and uh, he never, ever complained when I had to go off and do these missions. He, uh, he understood that's where I especially thrived.
0: Let's take another break now for um, some more music. God Bless the USA. Uh, what's the origin of your affection for this?
1: This song is played at almost every military event. It's really almost a national anthem for the military.
2: If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life, and I
1: had to start again with just my children and my wife. I'd thank my lucky stars to be
2: living here today cause the flag still stands for
1: freedom and they can't take that away and I'm proud to be
2: an American where at least I know I'm free and I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me and I gladly to you and defend her still today because ain't no doubt i love this land god bless the usa
0: god bless the usa music chosen by our guest on profiles today
2: retired army colonel jill morgenthaler production support for profiles comes from smithville a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: You've mentioned some of your civilian posts uh, before, event planning, press relations at Argonne National Laboratory, and one that... I find rather interesting. Um, You were appointed by Governor Rod Blagojevich as Deputy Chief of Staff for Public Safety and Homeland Security Advisor. That's kind of a combination of your peacetime and military background, is it not?
1: Yes. um, After Katrina, the governor decided he didn't want a politician running Homeland Security anymore. He wanted a military uh, individual And at Argonne National Laboratory, part of my job was as emergency response manager. So I had the training. So I literally was just sitting at my desk. Uh, people knew me because I'd been giving speeches, you know, Veterans Day, Memorial Day. And so they're like, well, we know a colonel. And so one day I'm just sitting at work, and I must admit, I came back from Iraq, and I was very bored. I was restless. I wanted something new. And the phone rang, and could the governor consider you to run Homeland Security? Oh, yes. And – um was fantastic. I moved to Springfield and I worked with, of course, fire, police, intel, all the different organizations uh, going forward on one mission. I also, besides overseeing Homeland Security, I did oversee. Uh, corrections, juvenile justice, veterans' affairs, public health. That was a lot more than I expected. But I, I grew with the job, and I felt like we put in a lot of wonderful initiatives to keep Illinois safe while I was there.
0: What was the biggest difficulty you had in that
1: job? Some of it was cultural. You have um, police and firefighters and medical people. Are all Each group is coming from a different perspective. You also have very strong personalities. And so the thing is to get everybody focused on the single mission of we are going to save lives and property. Now, how are we going to do this best with our strengths? And I think that really made me, as a leader, you, you need to maximize strengths. And so bringing everyone to the table – training together. You do not want to meet someone for the first time at a disaster. And the fabulous thing is these people were all professional. We were all on the same mission. So then it was just, how do we bring these cultures together to succeed? Some people will be
0: asking, um, what was it like to work
1: for Rod Blagojevich? (laughs) You know, the only time I ever saw him was during emergencies. He very much was surrounded by his staff, I understand now why. Back then, I couldn't understand why I couldn't get in to see him, to advise him on what was happening or where I was going or what I was doing. And now I'm thankful that I couldn't.
0: (laughs) When you left the military for good in 2006, I don't know if you gave a farewell speech, but what would you have said?
1: You know, I I did. And I quoted um, from A Few Good Men, the movie you know you want us on the wall in places you don't talk about at parties you need us on the wall and and no matter what goes on in american history or american society we need to have young brave patriots serving and i was so proud and honored that i was able to serve with such fine individuals especially after 911 everyone who volunteered knew they were going to go to war and that is such uh, strength. And America's really blessed to have such fine people stepping up and doing that.
0: In 2008, you ran for Congress. There have been some uh, retired military, I guess um, General Eisenhower is the best example, but they generally have tended to be Republican. And you wound up running as a Democrat. How did this come about?
1: Well, I have always been for the underdog. And I believe we are the wealthiest nation. And we have a duty to take care of our seniors and take care of our children. And so I feel that the government, part of that is reaching out and doing that for those who've already been ahead of us and those who will come. And I felt that the Republican Party, and especially my opponent, were very much about protecting corporate interests, not individual interests.
0: What was it like campaigning it's it 's somewhat you know in military you 're commanding, uh, and now you 've got to go out and press the flesh
1: it 's very different because all of a sudden this became about me, and that the military has never been about me, and now you know Joe Morgenthaler for Congress, everything said done reflects on me, and that was a learning lesson you know because I spent my whole life serving others, and it 's not that I was being served, but I had to realize. It all reflected around the persona of me, and that was a real change.
0: Was it difficult to go out and raise money?
1: It was very difficult. Um, I did not have the backing out of Washington. I was taking on an incumbent who had a large war chest. What I found, though, was interesting because this was 2008, is after Hillary did not get the nomination, a lot of women across the nation were, were crushed, and they wanted to support strong women. So I was able to raise money through them. I also was able to raise money for people who found Sarah Palin very scary. I raised a lot of money out of Alaska, of all places, (laughs) because they understood that she's very charismatic, but you're not talking about a great intellect there either.
0: What was it like dealing with the media during the campaign, given your background?
1: I would have liked the media to actually have done more fact-finding, because my opponent, of course, linked me to Governor Blagojevich, but he also linked me to Tony Resco, who's in prison for a lot of con- corruption. I've never met Tony Resco. I've never done any business with Tony Resco, and I would have liked the media to have come out and said this is a lie. You know, they're they're very balanced, they're very objective, but. I really wish it had been a stronger message. I mean I am proud I got the Chicago Tribune endorsement. I think I was the only Democrat that year who did and that's because my opponent was very much one to censor what military people could buy at the PX on DVDs and books. So I was going against an extremist here and that did make uh, the Tribune sit up. No journalist wants to hear about censorship and especially – Adult patriots who are serving our country should not have to be told what they can read. Do you think
0: you might try politics again?
1: Right now, no, but I'll, I'll never say never.
0: You now run a company called CJMI. Is, is the JM for Jill Morgenthaler?
1: Yeah, Colonel Jill Morgenthaler, Inc. Okay. <laughs> uh, what does it do? I do Homeland Security advising. I actually work with... Uh, Prime contractors, Al Washington, going on military bases, putting on terrorist strikes, grading their response. I help companies develop continuity plans. I also go into companies and do training for individual uh, safety. It's been exciting. I've actually advised Nigerian generals on how to set up emergency response and telecommunications in their nation. I was sent to Chile after the earthquake and did advise them. Unfortunately, they don't know what they don't have, and so that's something. And we don't have someone in Department of Homeland Security at the embassy to guide them. So I, I'm very glad I went. I wish I could do more.
0: To what degree does um, your military background help you get contracts in for that corporation?
1: Well, uh, first of all, within you know, Homeland Security is very much a. a Designed after the military format, uh, chain of command, unity of effort, and so that helps. So you're working with a lot of pe- peers who are coming from the same perspective that you are, and being a woman veteran uh, can often help in getting me a, a sub contract.
0: Do you do any recruiting for women in the military?
1: You know, I actually, that's a good question. I actually end up doing individual. I'm not an official recruiter at all. But, for example, this Friday night, I'm having dinner with a young woman and her mother. Um, the woman heard me talk, daughter's interest in the military. So what I have been doing is when people come to me, I will sit down with young women and their parents and and talk about uh, the, the different services. And I try and find out what the young lady's looking for. I don't promote just the Army. And And then I, you know, if they – are interested i help them you know link up with rotc on campuses or i'm even willing to walk into a recruiter with them to help them get what they want hmm.
0: you also have some been associated with a camp i think it's called gi jill
1: that's my personal safety boot camp i do training for children and, and women on mm-hmm. how to stay safe uh, bad guys give out signals as they're selecting victims. And I, I train um, in churches, schools on how to spot those signals so you get out of there before anything goes bad. And then worst case scenario, what are some uh, moves you can do to uh, get yourself out of danger?
0: More recently, I think you've been involved in um, some – Activities promoting leadership, particularly for women. What's the, what's the message you have for them?
1: I'm actually – I'm working on a book, uh, Winning at Work, 21 Ways to Lead and Succeed, using the military lessons. A lot of my leadership lessons, I should say, that I've learned the hard way. The first most important lesson, of course, is be true to yourself. And a lot of young – a lot of women, because it's still a man's world, they think they have to become the man to succeed. And the nice thing is I was able to keep my femininity and still be a successful leader. And young women love to hear that message. And uh, I actually had an incident in Iraq, and I was so glad. I, I went to a mess hall Sat down with some young women officers, just, you know, that colonel thing. Where are you from? How did you get your commission? And we were talking. One thing, I always wore lipstick in Bosnia, in Iraq. That was my little Jill thing. And as I got up to leave, one young lady said, thank you, ma'am. I'm going to stay in. I'm like, oh, why were you going to get out? And she goes, Oh, I didn't think I could be feminine and succeed. It's like, oh, yes, you can. And I'm so glad I sat down that day. And so that's, that's the first message. And then from there, I do talk about things that they can do different. Women aren't good at promoting themselves. Women aren't good at asking for what they want. And I learned that sitting there wondering, why are the guys getting the cool jobs? Well, everyone's thinking, Major Morgenthaler, well, she's a mother. She's a businesswoman. She doesn't want more responsibilities. They just assumed it until I finally said, whoa, how come nobody's considering me? And they're like, well, you didn't ask. Oh. So that's one of the big things. You've got to ask for what you want.
0: What is the military's biggest challenge remaining with women?
1: Oh, well, as we've heard in the news, there has been a lot of uh, sexual crimes against women. The good news is that now we're doing a lot more training for women at Fort Jackson and to teach women how to protect themselves. I mean, you make the assumption that everybody there is your team member and they're watching your back. And unfortunately, the military is a slice of society. And sometimes there are guys who have come in and you don't know why they're there and you don't know what their attitudes are. And so it's, it's sad, but I'm glad to see that the military has finally come up with a solution, is working forward to improve that. And it does come from the top down. I mean, this is where I was fortunate. I had commanders who basically said, I believe in Morgenthaler, and that set the whole command climate for me and other women to succeed.
0: For the last piece of music, you tell us you would like to listen to Kokomo. Why is that?
1: When we were over in Iraq, things were very tense, very dangerous. We were getting rocketed, mortared, car bombed, I mean, literally every day. And at one point... I had told my soldiers the song Kokomo, let's let's make a funny song out of it, and we never did. And then a group out of Kosovo did some, I think, United Nations soldiers. And so we would watch it, and that was our moment of humor. You needed levity because some days were very uh, dire. And so this always brings a smile to my face because it reminds me of the, the happier times we had during the war.
0: As we come to the end of this conversation, our guest today has been Jill Morgenthaler, retired military officer and security specialist. Jill, thanks for being here. You're welcome. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Pascash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.